The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. To learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH on Andy, your host. And before we start today's show, I would like to thank Barry, George and Louise for their recent donations. Uh, I'll just clarify, that was Barry and George, and not Barry George, I said that rather quickly. But anyway, today is... Thursday so of course it's time for the weekly visit of Dr Peter Hammond and we've got a show lined up you or rather Peter has with all his research entitled the real military heroes of World War II so Peter welcome to the show thank you so much I've been reading a lot of different books on military heroism uh, my family's had men in uniform and fighting all the way back to uh, pretty solidly back to Waterloo and uh, uh, certainly, uh, we can trace it all back to the Vikings invading England before 1066 even. So uh, I've found it fascinating that when you look at the Hollywood heroes and you look at films like Fury, or uh, which is completely fictional, or Where Eagles Dare, you, you get a certain perspective that's been given by the Hollywood narrative. But, you know, Truth is always more incredible in fiction. And early on, even as a child, as a teenager in high school, I preferred reading the real history books, the biographies of uh, fighter pilots like Douglas Bader and Adolf Garland. In fact, I found it kind of fascinating that there's Adolf Garland, uh, the German fighter ace, and uh, uh, he's uh, asking uh, Douglas Bader, uh, who is the British, uh, the enemy for him, to write the forward to his uh, a novel, The First and the Last, and they, in fact, became lifelong friends. And to be able to look at war from the individual perspective, too, because uh, history is not just national or unit or tactics or weapons. Uh, there's the most important constituent of warfare is the individual, the individual soldier, sailor, airman. Uh, he's the core. And uh, I came across a fascinating book uh, some time back called Aces of the Reich. It's Gordon Williamson's book, where he's put together an outstanding collection of more than 100 biographies, uh, mini biographies, of some of the most accomplished soldiers, seamen and airmen of the Second World War. And, and as I read the incredible achievements of these people, I thought, why has Hollywood never made any motion pictures on these sort of people? Because uh, this is far more incredible than any of the uh, mindless, impossible, um, <laughs> into comic strip uh, ridiculous impossibilities like Where Eagles Dare, 
you know, we, we've got uh, uh, two allies taking out the entire Alpine elite forces of the Reich and so on. Well, you know, in our dreams, that would have been fine, but it didn't happen, did it? So uh, you, you take um, Gordon Williamson's book, Aces of the Reich, and uh, it, it's just extraordinary. Just to look at the greatest top air ace of all time, Eric Hartman. Now, Eric Hartman, he, uh, in just about three years, he accumulated an incredible 352 aerial victories. Uh, in, in the West, we call them uh, kills. Uh, there, they, they, they called them um, uh, aerial victories, air victories. And this Hartman, uh, he joined the Luftwaffe at age 19, went to the Eastern Front, Jaeger's squadron, 52, in October 1942. And he scored his first kill in November, uh, a month later, and then three months later, he got a second. But somewhere along the line, he seemed to have really worked out how to do this. And uh, during Operation Citadel, the greatest tank battle in history, the Battle of Kursk, which began on the 5th of July 1943, Hartman's score began to mount, and his staff was assigned to protect the Panzers from the Soviet Sturmer Sturmoviks. The Sturmoviks were armored tank-busting aircraft armed with twin 37mm cannon, and they were armored. They were very hard to shoot down. Well, flying his measurement 109, Hartman took off on the morning of the 7th of July uh, in northern Ukraine at 3 a.m., and uh, he had uh, heard of a group of 10 to 20 Russian aircraft heading west. He gained altitude, spotted the Sturmoviks, and ordered an attack. And with its armor and its rear gunner, the Stormovic was an extremely tough target. So Hartman dived below, picked up airspeed, banked around, came up behind and underneath the Elushkin Stormovics, aiming for their ventral oil radiator. Close to about 100 meters before firing. You need nerves of steel for this, I think. And as blue flames and black sooty smoke steamed from the Stormovics radiator, he had scored his 22nd victory of the war. As the Russian formation began to break up, he targeted another Elushkin, and at 150 meters, open fire, more blue flame, more black smoke, 23rd air victory. Landed at 4 a.m., scrambled back by 5.50, downed another Stormovic and an LAG fighter. Four victories before breakfast. Later that afternoon, he led a staff up again, engaged in a sprawling dogfight with uh, Soviet fighters, quickly shot down three enemy fighters, making it seven air victories in one day. Now, if you're in... in a lifetime scored seven air victories, you'd be an ace. This guy's done this in a day. Uh, what they called the blonde knight. And by the end of 1943, it shot down 148 Soviet aircraft and earned his Knight's Cross. He was shot down and captured on the 12th of August 1943 during the monumental tank battle of Kursk. Um, and he had shot down 32 Sturmoviks, these armored tank killers, before being crash, uh, hit himself in crash landing. He removed the precious clock of the Messerschmitt 109 before being captured by Russian infantry, managed to jump out of a moving truck, plunge into a field of tall sunflower plants with bullets whizzing overhead, successfully made his way back to German lines. So shot down, captured, and escaped. <laughs> well, by March 1944, he had reached a total of 202 uh, air victories, earning him the Oak Leaves to his Knight's Cross. And then he won the Knight's Cross to the Iron Cross with Oak Leaves and Swords with Diamonds. Uh, this is only awarded to 27 um, people during the whole of the Second World War, 12 of whom were Luftwaffe pilots. Well, 
by the end of World War II in May 1945, um, he was now the commander of the famous Jager 52. Uh, he was ordered to uh, fly to the uh, British sector and he disregarded the order because he felt responsible for squadron's pilots, his ground crew, their family members. So they destroyed their unit's aircraft, moved on foot to Bavaria where they were occupied by US forces. Uh, he could have flown to safety, but he chose to go with all of his men on the ground. But a week after surrendering to the American forces, they were all delivered back across the border to the Red Army, where he is sentenced to 50 years hard labor as a slave in Siberia. And he is put under tremendous pressure to build up the East German Air Force, refused. And only when he was finally released in 1955 uh, did he get back to the West, 10 years as a prisoner of war. And uh, then he worked to build up the West German Luftwaffe and commanded the uh, Jager Squadron 71, the Richthofen Squadron. Uh, so uh, the man who won more air victories than anyone else in all of history, unlikely to ever be beaten, 352 air victories. That's one of the top air aces. Then you get tank aces like Michael Whitman. Uh, <laughs> you compare Michael Whitman, the real tank ace, with the fictional uh, one in Fury, uh, which uh, they've put out there in Hollywood, which is, you know, honestly uh, laughable, uh, beyond ridiculous, uh, unrealistic nonsense. But uh, Michael Whitman, he joined German Army at age 36, and uh, by age 22, he joined the Waffen-SS. He was involved in the Austrian campaign, the Sudetenland occupation, and his first action came in the Polish campaign, September 39, in the Battle of France, he was commanding a self-propelled gun, the Storm Geschütz. During the Greek campaign, April 1941, he helped capture Athens as part of the 9th Panzer Division. He operated in Operation Barbarossa and uh, still not having a tank. He just has an assault gun. Uh, but by 1943, he has returned to the Eastern Front as a second lieutenant, now uh, commanding a Tiger tank. And this is when his uh, uh, career really took up. He survived a collision with a T-34, which was destroyed. Uh, during the Battle of Kursk, he destroyed at least 30 Soviet tanks confirmed. And just in one day, he destroyed 13 Soviet T-34s. Well, by January 1944, he had destroyed 88 enemy tanks and was awarded Knight's Cross of the Iron's Cross with Oak's Leaves. Well, April 1944, he was transferred to the Western Front. And Immediately after the Allied invasion of Normandy, D-Day, he was ordered uh, to Normandy, which took five days to reach. By the time he arrived, there was a 12-kilometer gap opened up in German lines under relentless Allied bombardment. And anticipating its importance, the British were reassigned to the high ground near uh, villers bocage in France. And Wittmann positioned his company near the town and the British 7th Armoured Division was ordered to exploit the gap in the German lines and capture this village, uh, Villers Bocas. And Whitman at this stage only had five tanks, two of which were damaged. As Whitman's Tiger emerged from cover, it engaged the rare most British tanks on the ridge, destroyed them. He then moved his Tiger to the village, destroying several transport vehicles, engaged a number of light tanks, followed by several medium tanks, and under continuous fire, Whitman destroyed another British tank, a self-propelled gun, a scout car, and a half-track. He dueled a Sherman, Sherman Firefly. In less than 15 minutes, Whitman's Tiger tank had destroyed 14 Allied tanks, two anti-tank guns, 15 transport vehicles. Uh, this is in 15 minutes. 
and he's destroyed over 30 enemy vehicles. Just staggering. Now, compare that with the Hollywood fiction of Fury. For his actions, he was promoted to captain and awarded swords to the Knights Cross, the Irons Cross, and uh, just the greatest tank ace of all time without any close competitor. But even more incredibly than these is Hans Ulrich Rudel, the Stuka ace. I mean, they should make films about these people. The greatest tank destroyer in history is Hans Ulrich Rudel of the Luftwaffe. He destroyed 519 Soviet tanks. <laughs> the son of a clergyman, he had excelled in sports, joined the Luftwaffe in 1936, served as a reconnaissance observer during the Polish campaign. He started Stuka training, others dive bomber training near Stuttgart after that. He took part in the airborne invasion of Crete in uh, 1941, which the British had prior knowledge of every aspect of and were ready for the uh, airborne assault uh, because of Ultra. Um, but nevertheless, um, the uh, German paratroopers still succeeded and, and Rudel was providing air support with his Stukas. Well, when Operation Barbarossa broke out in June 1941, Hans Rudel began his first combat dive bombing missions into Soviet Union. And in the first 18 hours, he flew four combat missions. He was in September uh, sent to attack the Soviet fleet in Leningrad. And during his attack, he sunk the Soviet battleship Marat with one single 1,000 kilogram bomb, hitting its ammunition store and breaking the ship in half. Now, he could only carry one bomb and he hit it one shot, destroyed the entire Soviet battleship. On Christmas, he flew his 500th mission awarded the German cross in gold by Baron von Richthofen's cousin, um, General Friar Wolfram von Richthofen. Hans Riddle was then sent to Graz to train new Stuka crews. And when he came back to the Eastern Front, 1942, he got command of the first staffel of the first wing of Stukas operating in Stalingrad area. And he flew his thousandth mission and was then posted to the newly formed um, Panzer Commando. And these were modified Stukas armed with two 37 millimeter cannons, one under each wing with just six rounds of ammunition. But in the space of three weeks, Rudel destroyed 70 Soviet boats in the Black Sea. 70. Uh, in March, he was involved in the tank battle at Belgorod and knocked out the first tank with a prototype tank busting Stuka. He came from behind and the tank exploded like a bomb, bits of it crashing down behind us. Well, then they started to rename these the uh, Yonker 87 G1s, which is the tank busters. And Hans Riddle was now awarded Oak Leaves to his Knight's Cross and a squadron of tank busting uh, G1s were assigned to support the Panzers during Operation Citadel, the largest tank battle in history, Kursk, which uh, the Allies uh, knew all the details of through GCHQ, uh, Enigma code breaking uh, from Bletchley Park and the Soviets knew. And so they were actually going into a complete trap where the Soviets had prior knowledge of all their dispositions, assets and, and intentions. On the first day of the battle, Rudel knocked out four Soviet tanks. By the evening, a score had grown to 12. We were all seized with a kind of passion for the chase from the glorious feeling of having saved so much German blood with every Soviet tank destroyed, he said. So he developed new tank uh, tactics for these tank busters, finding out the best way to rush, knock out a Russian T-34 
was from the rear. In fact, about the only way was from the rear because the mounted engine and cooling system didn't permit the installation of the heavy armor plating at the back, which they had on the front, which resisted almost any uh, cannon at that stage. In March 1944, he flew his 1,500th combat mission, promoted to the rank of major. During a mission behind the lines, one of his squadron was shot down and crash-landed. Rudel decided to land to rescue his comrades in enemy territory. But after landing, he realized the ground was too soft, he wouldn't be able to take off. They were forced to then escape on foot towards the German lines, pursued by the Russians. Rudel had to swim 600 meters in ice-cold water in the Dnieper River. I don't know how many people have swum rivers. I've swum rivers, and that's in Africa, not in ice-cold conditions. And that's hard because rivers are wider, deeper, and the current's always faster than you think. And as you're swimming, you can't go straight. It's it's going at such an angle as you're being pulled downstream. You get cramps. And swimming in clothes and with boots, as I've done, it's, but to imagine 600 meters in ice-cold water, phenomenal. But he succeeded. And uh, he then won the highest award in German history, the Knight's Cross with Oak Leaves and Swords, uh, March 1944. While flying near Budapest, he is shot in the thigh, yet returned to service a few days later with his leg in a plaster cast. On the 1st of January 1945, he was awarded the Knight's Cross with go Gold, Oak Leaves, Swords and Diamonds, the only recipient of this award, which was actually created especially for him because of the phenomenal success he had had in tank busting. Now he was seriously wounded in his right thigh, shattered by an anti-aircraft fire near Le Bus, landed in German-held territory, taken to field hospital. His leg was amputated. In Berlin, he had an artificial limb fitted, and he returned to a squadron without a leg. On the 8th of May 1945, when Germany surrendered, Colonel Rudel flew his last mission from Bohemia to escape capture by the Soviets, and he was interrogated first in England, then France, eventually returned to Bavaria. During his career, Colonel Rudel had flown over 2,530 missions. He had shot down 11 enemy aircraft, destroyed 519 Soviet tanks, 150 artillery pieces, 70 Soviet uh, warships, boats, over and patrol boats, over 1,000 military vehicles, two LAGG fighters, and an Aleutian II Stormovich armored tank buster uh, aircraft. He had sunk a destroyer two cruisers, and he destroyed the Soviet battleship Murat. One person responsible for such huge losses for the Red Army, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin placed a 100,000 ruble price on his head. It's calculated that Hans Riddle flew over 600,000 kilometers. He used more than 5 million liters of fuel. He dropped over a million kilograms of bombs. He fired over a million machine gun rounds, 150,000 20 millimeter rounds, and over 5,000 37 millimeter rounds. He is described as an outstanding pilot who hated to take leave. He wouldn't even take sick leave, even when he had his leg amputated. And he was not depressed. It says he, as long as he could still do what he loved to fly and to destroy the enemy. And so his personal courage and bravery and unparalleled determination marks him out as one of the most extraordinary pilots in history. And Rudel's famous quote was, lost are those who abandon themselves. So he wrote two books, We Frontline Soldiers and Opinion to the Rearmament of Germany, and he also wrote Dagger Thrust. So he published his war diary, uh, which is called Nevertheless, and uh, two of the greatest allied fighter pilots, Douglas Bader and uh, Pierre Klosterman, wrote warm, positive, 
forwards to this edition. And that's kind of fascinating because that brings on to someone like Adolf Garland, who was one of the first fighter pilots I'd read about. And I read about him because I'd first read Douglas Bader's uh, uh, biography. Um, and maybe you've seen the film, uh, Reach for the Sky. And uh, Adolf Garland was a phenomenally successful German fighter pilot. And he was uh, he had the Mickey Mouse sign on the side of his uh, Messerschmitt 109. Well, he started his war experience in the Civil War in Spain, 1935, flying the biplane, a very out-of-date biplane, the Heinkel 51. And he is fighting against up-to-date Soviet and American aircraft on the side of the communists uh, in the uh, Spanish Civil War. He is with the nationalists. And Garland uh, was used primarily in a ground support role, learned quite a bit in Spain. And uh, at the outbreak of the war, uh, he actually performed well in Poland, and uh, he managed to uh, get to the Western Front. And from May 1940, he was leading Jager Squadron 27. He scored his first victory, an RAF hurricane. From there, his score, his score ran steadily. He shot down, uh, in fact, 12 enemy aircraft just between the 12th of May and 9th of June during the operation of the Western Front. And then in June, he had... Uh, posting to Jager Squadron 26, whose notorious yellow-nosed Messerschmitt fighters were well known to the RAF. He is promoted to Major the 1st of August 1940, given Knight's Cross, and he achieved a total of 17 victories up to that point, 1st of August. Now he was commander of the Jager Squadron 26, and now he fought through the whole of the Battle of Britain. His score soared up to 40 uh, aerial kills, this, he received the oak leaves, the Knight's Cross, and he managed to, uh, by 1st November, be up to 50 air victories, become colonel, uh, 69th victory by June 1941, and he was shot down after uh, colliding with a Spitfire uh, <laughs> uh, after 69th victory. Well, later on um, that year, 9th of August 1941, one of his pilots in the squadron shot down the British air ace Douglas Bader, the man of reach for the sky. And uh, Douglas Bader, you may recall, had lost his legs due to a vehicle accident before the war. And so he had these aluminium legs, or what he called his tin legs. And so uh, he had lost his legs in being shot down because his legs were trapped. And so he had to unstrap his legs to be able to parachute out. So he landed without legs. And the very chivalrous uh, pilots from Yaga Squadron 26, uh, they... They always pursued where one of the, the, the people had shot down had landed so that they would look after them. And so he was brought back to the unit mess and treated as a guest of honor and allowed to sit at the controls of Meshmet 1-9. And uh, Garland presented Douglas Bader with a box of his own cigars, best cigars, and, uh, and then arranged with the head of the Air Force, Goering, that safe pass be granted to Royal Air Force aircraft to drop a replacement set of artificial eggs fitted for Douglas Bader. And uh, uh, the British did send over a plane to drop his legs, but unfortunately, uh, the same plane dropped bombs on the same mission, which seemed somewhat out of the spirit of the event. But after the war, Douglas Bader and, and Adolf Gaughan became good friends and did a lot of things together, including writing for one another's books. Uh, so uh, Garland continued his, with his victory level to grow by beginning of January 1942, he had reached 94 air victories, all of them on the Western Front. 
And uh, so you got the diamonds and swords, the oak leaves of the Knight's Cross. And um, interesting uh, that uh, he then was put in charge of fighter, the fighter arm, which meant he wasn't allowed to be flying. He was stuck with a hated desk job, but he was a phenomenally good pilot and he was a phenomenally good um, advocate for the uh, fighter pilots and campaigning for the best equipment. So already in May 1943, he had witnessed the test flight, the Meshmet 262, the first fighter jet, super impressed, determined to fly it himself. And he was pushing to get this released as a fighter, which it should have been before the end of 43, except that political requirements from the pol politicos up above demanded that it be converted to a fighter bomber, which delayed its release for another year, which uh, could have made a big difference in the fighter war, as one can imagine. And so when the new fighter jets came out, uh, Adolf Garland was put in charge, he is now a lieutenant general, and he was put in charge of uh, the Jager Squadron 44, flying the Meshmet 262s. And this was the squadron of experts, virtually all of them holders of the Knight's Cross, and had experts like Gunther Lutzau and Johannes Steinhoff and uh, Gerrit Barkhorn and uh, famous people. Uh, now Adolf Garland shot down seven enemy bombers with the Meshmet 262, which is probably the best score any general uh, would ever get, and it's unlikely to ever be beaten. So he now soared up to 104 enemy uh, aircraft destroyed or, or air victories. And uh, in, uh, sadly, he was held as a prisoner of war for two years. I don't know why an airman needs to be held as a prisoner of war uh, two years after the war ends. But after that, he got a, a contract to help build up the Argentinian Air Force. And um, he became close friends with British air aces like Bob Stanford Tuck and, of course, Adolf Garland. And while his personal scores being surpassed by other air aces, his total achievements were unequaled. And quite an extraordinary person on, on any level. When you look at uh, one of the most amazing air aces, a real daredevil, um, Captain Hans Joachim Marseille. Now, uh, he was the subject of a film, a black and white film made in Germany, uh, uh, The Star of Africa, which is well worth seeing. Uh, but uh, um, Captain Hans Joachim Marseille was a phenomenal pilot and he chalked up more victories than anybody else um, on the Western Front, that is. Uh, his air victories uh, went over 150. Uh, so uh, one of the most amazing achievements. Uh, he had in 384, 382 combat missions, he managed to win 158 air victories. Now, what's extraordinary is this is all in the Western Front, all against Western allies and mostly against the Royal Air Force. So... Uh, Marseille was uh, posted to North Africa with Yaga Squadron 27 under the Desert Fox Field Marshal Rommel. And Marseille was such a superlative marksman that uh, research showed at the time he used an average of only 15 rounds of ammunition for every victory. 15 rounds for an air victory is just unparalleled. I mean, who could, not even, Elf, uh, uh, not even um, Adolf Garland or Baron von Richthofen could compete with this. And so Adolf Garland himself said, Marseille is unequaled. And uh, he would get so many kills on a single day, it was just staggering. So on the 3rd of June, 1942, in the Western Front, uh, I mean, North African desert, uh, he shot down six Allied aircraft in 11 minutes. And then 
Uh, on the 6th of June 1942, he achieved 75 victories in total. Uh, he managed to, on the 17th of June, shoot down six aircraft in seven minutes. Now, there's no air ace in the world who could compete with this kind of uh, uh, skill and the time uh, that it would take him. Um, in fact, the following day, uh, he managed to pass the score into the 100 marks, uh, earning the swords uh, with oak leaves um, for his knight's cross. Uh, he, on uh, just to give some of his exa examples, in uh, two engagements in a single day, he shot down 12 Allied fighters. And sorry to say, this included Rhodesian, South African. Um, a lot of South Africans were shot down by him too because all part of the Western Desert Army, which became part of the 8th Army. Uh, so there were quite a few of our people. And and they testified. I've, I've got the South African books on this, South Africans against Rommel and so on, where they're speaking about how uh, the South Africans shot down by Marseille and other North uh, Africa Corps uh, Luftwaffe pilots uh, testified how they would fly over them afterwards to check that they'd landed safely. They would radio their position to their base to be forwarded to the British. Uh, they would sometimes fly over the British base and drop information uh, out of the window written as to where to find their pilot who had been shot down. And uh, there were times when the amount of chivalry involved with dropping medical and water supplies for the people they'd shot down. And as he said, you know, we, we fight against the machines, not the men. And uh, so uh, on the same day where he, he had actually in two engagements shot down 12 fighters in the space of only uh, eight of them were brought down space of only 10 minutes. He took off on a third mission that day and was attacked by Curtis fighters and shot down a further five within eight minutes, the Curtis being American planes made available by Lend-Lease uh, to the Allies, to the British. So his total for the day was 17 enemy fighters, the most any ace scored in the entire war. Nobody else shot down 17 fighters in a single day, and that's in three uh, combat uh, flights. And you couldn't do it if you used the amount of ammunition the average uh, pilot would use, but because he was able to take down a plane with just a 15-round uh, burst, it's just staggering. Uh, so uh, you can imagine when... <laughs> He was winning the highest awards possible, swords, oak leaves, diamonds to his Knight's Cross. And the fourth of only uh, 12 Luftwaffe pilots ever received such awards. And uh, Marseille, uh, at the end, uh, he had in 382 missions, won 158 victories. Uh, he was, um, he was uh, hit during one of his combat missions in September 1942. And uh, he had engine trouble he was trying to nurse a stricken aircraft back to German lines. He could have landed safely in the British lines, but he had, he waited too long to bail out. And by the time he jettisoned his canopy, he was almost at the end of his strength. And uh, his body slammed into the tail plane of the fighter and uh, his body plummeted to the ground, parachute failing to open. So uh, the star of Africa, uh, was a, the loss of him was a great blow to uh, the uh, Hunter Squadron 27 Africa Corps into the Luftwaffe. And I think it was the first uh, German military film made after the war, 1955, when they came out with the Stern von Africa, or the, the Star of Africa, which is available with English subtitles, uh, can, can be viewed online free. But one of the greatest fighter aces, and unlikely to ever be equaled, and he is a pilot's pilot, greatly admired, even by his enemies. And uh, if he had survived that, uh, that bailout, he could have easily joined Eric Hartman and 
Gert Barkhorn in the 300 plus club of fighter aces. Imagine what he could have achieved if he had gotten a Meshmet 262, uh, for example, uh, towards the end of the war. So uh, there are some phenomenal uh, aces. Uh, just to go through the top fighter aces uh, that they had in the Luftwaffe, it, it boggles the brain because you go through their lists and there are many in the 200, 300, 100 and something uh, class. And if you compare that with the greatest fighter ace on the Allied side in the Commonwealth uh, was uh, Sailor Milan. And Sailor Milan was a South African Air Force pilot. And Sailor Milan, interestingly, he is depicted by uh, Robert Shaw in the Battle of Britain film. And the Battle of Britain film, uh, interestingly enough, uh, took off his shoulder flash. I've got, I've seen the picture of Sailor Milan in our local uh, museum in Frontier, the Huguenot Museum, because uh, Sailor, uh, Sailor Milan was uh, of French Huguenot stock, uh, which has South Africa written big and bold on on the shoulder flash. Well, in the film Battle of Britain, uh, Robert Shaw, who plays Sailor Milan, doesn't have that South African flash on. They expressly took it out, and he didn't speak with a South African accent uh, because. At that stage, 1966, when the Battle of Britain was uh, being filmed and coming out, South Africa was no longer popular. And so they just altered history and made him a British pilot instead of a South African pilot and took off the South African uh, shoulder flash and so on. Uh, Sailor Milan got 40 air victories, making him the greatest Commonwealth uh, Allied fighter ace of, of the war. Now, when you compare that with what the... German Air Force was winning. Now, some people said, well, don't tell me that the Luftwaffe was better than, than the uh, Royal Air Force or, or the American Air Force and so on. Well, bear in mind that the longer you are fighting and the more you're fighting and the, the uh, tougher enemy you're fighting, the better you get. Just like with, uh, you can't say in your first run, you're going to be equal to uh, after 20 years as a long distance runner and uh, how you stretch your, your mind and your muscles and your stamina. So obviously where we only had one front to fight on and then the Germans are fighting on the Russian front and on many fronts and they're fighting for a lot longer and America only got involved in the war uh, theoretically in 1941 but they're only really getting involved in the Western uh, sphere of operations in 1943 uh, with Operation Torch in North Africa and so on. So you can't compare what the Allies had to face with what these men had to face in terms of the most phenomenal uh, being outnumbered. And uh, so this book, The Aces of the Reich, with uh, more than 100 mini biographies by uh, Gordon Williamson, it just shows you that the narrative we're getting from Hollywood is not even vaguely close to reality. And truth is far more incredible than fiction. And when you're thinking of these classic dramas of against all odds, well, in fact, in the Second World War, the people who were always outnumbered and are always undersupplied and are always overwhelmed uh, by vastly greater resources and numbers on the enemy side was the, the German Army and Air Force. And what they were achieving uh, is staggering against so many odds. And it, it should be recognized that in the history of warfare, and you can learn from friend and foe, the achievements of the Luftwaffe, uh, achievements of the Kriegsmarine and the Wehrmacht are just staggering. And uh, this book also has a whole lot on the sea aces. There are some amazing naval men and what they particularly uh, managed to achieve. Uh, you take um, 
Lieutenant Otto Westphalen, commander of U-968. He sank three escort destroyers, um, which is no mean feat. <laughs> you uh, think of some of these other men like um, uh, Captain Eric Topp. Uh, he managed to, as commander of U-552, uh, sink 35 enemy ships, totaling 192,000 tons. Now, you think the way that uh, these people are depicted is often so uh, untrue to what really happened. So many of these uh, uh, U-boat commanders, especially in the early part of the war, they would surface, they would warn the ship to, to get into their lifeboats and to abandon ship. that had been uh, sunk and keeping them on uh, on the uh, surfaced uh, um, submarine, uh, the whole deck covered and they're the towing boats and trying to get them close to the shore in Africa that they could find a sanctuary in one of the French African uh, ports. And uh, there were cases where they were actually strafed, having allied um, uh, prisoners of war uh, that they just or seamen trying to get them to safety. And they were being uh, strafed uh, by American and, on occasion, British uh, air forces, so that they had to dive and leave these um, people who are the allies who they're trying to save and get them to shore to safety. And when you get these stories together and you see, well, obviously the narrative we're getting from Hollywood is not fair, it's not true, it's not accurate, it's not balanced. And we should go back to real history and see what was achieved by the people on the ground and uh, the kind of uh, amazing characters that, that we find there. Uh, just one chap to sort of um, uh, mention as well is this Steinhoff, who, who was one of the most amazing of the um, uh, Air Force pilots. And uh, when, we, when we think of the people like Rudel, um, August Johannes Steinhoff, one of Germany's greatest uh, aces, and uh, he was also one of the um, uh, first jet fighter pilots. And Steinhoff was uh, phenomenally successful throughout the war. And what he managed to achieve uh, in, in his fighting, including uh, he got up to 176 air victories. Flew a thousand combat missions, scored 176 air victories, six of which was with the Meshmer 262. He was, um, he had a horrible crash with the Meshmer 262, was horribly disfigured uh, and, and hideously burned and uh, with gallant determination recovered. And he went on uh, to become head of the German Air Force after the war. Um, an amazing, uh, he, he was even not just a major general at the end of the war, he became Germany's main representative in NATO, highly respected by all of the Allied uh, forces um, uh, uh, during the Cold War and finally retired in 1972. I mean, Steinhoff was one of the greatest fighter aces and top jet aces of all. So these are just some of the people, some of the names you probably wouldn't have heard of before. Uh, but when I look at this and I think of the odds that they fought against and logistically, numerically, qualitatively, in every way, I think that's why we can call these some of the real military heroes of World War II. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Peter. And uh, it's interesting you draw the parallels with the uh, sort of narrative you get from this period of history from, you know, the mainstream media, Hollywood and the like. And it reminds me of the uh, famous Churchill quote when he was asked how he would be regarded in history. And I think he said words to the effect of history will be kind to me because I will write it. And that's essentially what we're seeing with all these other people. Would that be fair comment, Peter? It is a fair comment, and it reminds me of what my history teacher in Rhodesia said, and uh, 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 Mr. Rhys Davies was a member of parliament in, in Rhodesia. He said, beware the victor's version. Wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks, and of course, he could have added Hollywood movies too. And uh, so he said, never accept the official narrative. Think outside the box. Go to primary source documents. <laughs> Read the real history. Never accept the textbooks at school. And... That was good advice. And yes, beware the victor's version indeed. Uh, Winston Churchill also said that the truth is so precious. It needs to be protected by a bodyguard of lies. <sighs> so, yes, we know where Winston Churchill stands on that. Back to you, Andrew. Yes, indeed we do. And um, these sort of accounts as well, I mean, they're, they're fascinating. I mean, this in information is not something that I've looked into. And um, how um, the book itself, I don't know if it's still available. I was looking for it to see if I could put um, the cover on the post for this show, but there's only some um, pretty poor quality uh, pictures of the cover. Um, but it seems yes. to me that so, it's out so of I print. So I see the publisher, it's first published in Great Britain, 1989, by Arms and Armour Press, Artillery House, Artillery Row, London, uh, distributed in the USA by Sterling Publishing in uh, New York, so distributed in Australia by Capricorn uh, Link, um, New South Wales. So copyrights, Gordon Williamson, 1989. I don't know if that helps for folks to try and track it down, but absolutely riveting. I, I've sat up many a night reading, and then you just can't help to read another chapter and another one. Um, and the next thing I know, it's past midnight. Uh, because this is, why don't they make films on heroes like this? Because this is just phenomenal. The human ingenuity and the car. You know, you just think what Rod Rudel went through and what... Uh, um, uh, Michael Whitman experience in the Western on the Eastern Front and the Western Front, and uh, uh, with the these people being shot down, being captured, escaping, fighting even after losing legs. Yeah, these are this is the stuff of high uh, drama and adventure which deserves uh, big screen epics made of them. And uh, it just lets you know that the people in Hollywood are not interested in a good story. They're not interested in the truth. They've got a narrative. They've got an agenda, and they obviously are trying to steal and destroy everything Western, Christian, and decent. It seems that they are on the side of the Marxists, at least most of the producers of the Hollywood films seem to be, because they never make a film on the Soviet concentration camps, the Holodomor, on the uh, phenomenal massacres of tens of millions of people under Stalin and Mao Zedong and Lenin. So somehow or another, as uh, was well said by the great... Uh, Russian Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, that uh, uh, why is there no interest in the 66 million Christians killed by the Jews in the Soviet Union in the name of communism? You know, why is it? And he said, the fact that most people don't know about the 66 million slaughtered in Russia in, under the Soviet Union is because the media in the West is in the control of the same people who are responsible for the massacres in the Soviet Union. Back to you, Andrew. Yes, and um, 
the World War Two are three words, and I think what the mainstream media use that to uh, point to is another three words, and that's six million Jews. And they don't talk about the other millions that died in that war. That is the only aspect that they push. Um, and so you're never going to see any sort of um, uh, revelations, if you like, about the uh, massacres of uh, Christians, 66 million in Russia, because they're Christians and they don't count, you see. And they certainly don't want yes. to show who was behind it. Uh, back to you, Peter. There was this Bishop Williamson who made a comment some time ago uh, that um, we seem to have replaced Christianity with Holocaustanity, where instead of the cross, you now have the gas chamber. Instead of Christ, you now have the Jews. Instead of the martyrs, you now have the six million. Instead of the apostles, uh, you now have the survivors. And uh, he said that uh, it's now heresy and treason to question the Hollywood narrative of World War II, the propaganda narrative. And uh, it, it's extraordinary, he said, that somehow it's acceptable to blaspheme the name of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But you cannot question the narrative or the numbers or the statistics or the sources or anything of those who promote Holocaust entities. So he's pointing out that, in fact, we've got a new religion. And it does seem like that when you go to the European Union uh, Parliament uh, headquarters in uh, Brussels, as I have, the first thing you see is they've got a big panorama circle of, of uh, in the plane outside the entrance, which has got pictures of the famous pictures, the Auschwitz gates and all that sort of thing. And uh, all of these things, all part of the narrative that is part of how the EU exists. So the justification for this new Tower of Babel and for the New World Order is how evil the old world was and how World War II was the good war and how you've got to believe that justice and freedom uh, won out and succeeded and our side were on the side of the angels and the other side didn't have one single redeeming feature. And you've got to believe this. And there weren't two sides of the story. And you're not allowed to discuss the other side. And so historical objectivity is undermined. And we are meant to ignore a lot of not just facts of history, uh, but we meant to ignore what we see with our own eyes, that things haven't gotten better. In fact, things have gotten worse. And uh, why are we still attached to these myths, legends, lies, and distractions, well, it's so that the left can get on with the New World Order agenda, the Great Reset, and therefore we've got to recognize we are being lied to. Uh, we are, and part of the lies against us is the big lie of what actually happened in the Second World War. And uh, many people that I know who fought in the Second World War, which includes my own father, uh, were very uh, skeptical, cynical, and uh, <laughs> dismissive of the Hollywood narrative and said it wasn't like that, it didn't happen like that, and I don't believe it. And we should listen to those people because who are we going to believe? Uh, like in my case, do I believe my father and people I know to be Christians who fought in the Second World War, or do I believe some cocaine-sniffing drug addict producers from Hollywood who are proven to be pedophiles? <laughs> yeah, tough choice, isn't it, Andrew? <laughs> Absolutely, and... Um... Yeah, we've got, I think uh, we've got about five minutes left, Peter. And um, now, folks, Peter's probably the most busy uh, gentleman that I know who uh, comes on the show. Um, and he's going to, he's got some work to do with his ministry the next couple of weeks. So he's going to be back on in three weeks time. Um, but 
with that in mind, is there any other information that you'd like to get out in these last five minutes? Anything, your thoughts on the, the COVID yes. situation, the vaccine, South Africa? The floor is yours, Peter. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, well, uh, I've got um, lectures. I'm, I'm part of the faculty for the last uh, 14 years at a Bible college up country. And so I'm going to be over in Pumalanga uh, lecturing to students from about 20 different countries around Africa and uh, first, second, third year students all together. And that's that's um, always a highlight of me here going and, and lecturing to those folks, uh, very good people and um, uh, a very strategic op- opportunity. But right now, uh, your listeners would be interested to know that the movement for Cape Independence is growing apace. Uh, the COVID cults, the pandemic panic, the lockdown lunacy has woken up many people in our area here in, in uh, Cape of Good Hope, who are saying our government is not just overreached, but this whole thing is a false narrative. It's a false pandemic. Uh, there is no need for this vaccine. The vaccine is more dangerous than the, uh, the disease. There seems to be a higher chance of injury or death from taking the vaccine than there is from uh, contracting COVID. Uh, certainly everyone on our mission and my family have all had this uh, COVID and we've all recovered. And uh, it's not nice uh, having the flu, but... Uh, It's not the sort of thing to commit economic suicide for and to stop your lives for. And uh, plainly, you can see what we are experiencing is governments with a socialist, new world order, totalitarian, centralized agenda are using the cover, the smokescreen of this so-called pandemic in order to extend their powers and steal our freedoms and hijack our lives and destroy our businesses. I used to call it economic suicide, but suicide suggests it's voluntary. It's more like economic massacre and murder. Uh, So uh, we are resisting. And uh, 20 months ago, Cape Exit Movement had 7,000 members. Uh, Last week, we reached 750,000 members. So you can see the growth for Cape Independence. Uh, I'm hosting many meetings regularly at the Cape Independence Forum. Uh, It's ongoing just in the last week. uh, We've had three meetings with high-powered groups interested in Cape Independence. So Uh, There's a lot of people who are fed up with what's going on now, and they're saying the centralized government that we've got is is not working at our interest. They don't care about our health, uh, let alone our businesses. We are uh, wanting to secede. And so much inspired by the Brexit move and uh, by countries that have broken away from the Soviet Union, like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Croatia and Slovenia from Yugoslavia, we are seeking independence for the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and uh, there's a lot of groups now that are mobilizing so much so that I host a forum with multiple participants and organizations regularly discussing ways for this to be achieved. And and on the ground, our support has uh, just uh, uh, skyrocketed. So uh, please keep praying for us in South Africa. We are targeted. As you know, we've got an, an communist government in ANC who wants to take away our land, who wants to disarm our people and who do virtually nothing to protect us from farm terrorism And therefore, uh, we have little choice but to uh, break away and form our own country where we can be uh, free and independent. So uh, that's some of what's on the go right now. Uh, But if people want to go onto our frontline mission, sa.org website, they'll see some updates on what's happening in the country and the continent and what we're doing. Frontline mission, sa.org. And my email is peter at frontline.org.za.
Thank you so much, Peter. And yeah, this takes us into, you know, the mainstream media. When I was putting the show post together for the Tuesday uh, uh, show with Paul English, it took me forever because I had to put all these links in to all these mainstream articles that were basically from either the Daily Mail or the BBC. And, um, (laughs) you know, there's so much propaganda out there now. It is absolutely astonishing, the level of propaganda. It's just non-stop. And already, I'm recording this the day before it airs on the Wednesday, and I've already got a couple more propaganda pieces, and I, goodness knows how many I'm going to have for you next week when I do the shows with Paul, because they're just pushing this and pushing this and pushing this. And when did governments ever do things for your benefit? That's the question that I always ask. So um, that's uh, about it. Peter, any final words? Well, thank you so very much for this. Um, I will miss the opportunity of the next two weeks, uh, but um, in about three weeks' time, I will be uh, back. And I've been reading some other fascinating books like The Best of Enemies, uh, Britain and Germany, Truth and Lies and Two World Wars, uh, God's Battalions on the Case for the Crusades, which is a defense, a positive case for the Crusades. These are just some of the books on hand that, oh, and uh, the, the Trouble with Lincoln, uh, we've been discussing one on Abraham Lincoln for a while. I've just been uh, working my way through, I'm three quarters of the way through this new book on Lincoln, which is fascinating. So those are some things I've got coming up in terms of book reports. Thank you so much, Peter. And folks, um, don't forget that in the post for our shows together, uh, there is a link to an archive of pretty much all of the shows Peter and I have done together. So whilst you may miss him over the next couple of weeks, you can go to some of those shows and listen to those there. So I want to thank Peter so much for joining me today. I hope you have a a very productive couple of weeks with your lecturing, Peter. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye.